You're listening to The Path Forward Dayton, a Dayton Daily News podcast where we discuss the most pressing issues facing our region and seek solutions. I'm your host, Community Impact Editor Nick Herkman. Today's podcast is a recording of a community conversation we held on Wednesday, May 18th, on the topic of how federal relief money is being spent. Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for joining me. I'm Nick Herkman, the Community community Impact Editor for the Dayton Daily News. You're listening to a community conversation. These are a series of moderated discussions on topics really critical to our audiences and communities. Uh, this topic this month is going to be on how the federal relief money is being spent in our communities. It's a transformational, potentially transformational amount of money. Uh, and a lot of our communities from around the region are, are handling it in different ways in terms of the public input, in terms of the way the funds are being allocated. There's just a lot to be discussed here, and it really will show up uh, in meaningful ways uh, throughout our region. So we're going to jump straight into the program with uh, introductions. Again, I'm Nick Kirkman, the Community Impact Editor. Josh Swigert is my co-host. Josh, if you give a little introduction. Yeah, Josh Swigert, uh, investigative reporter of the Dayton Daily News, and we've, we're doing a project looking at COVID spending and, and where all this money is going. And We've totaled just the CARES Act and ARPA money alone, the American Rescue Plan money uh, combined is over a billion dollars going to area governments. So there's a lot of interest in that where that money is going. That's a ton of taxpayer money and a ton of potential. And uh, I thank everyone for being here to discuss it because it's such an important topic. And I know that there's a lot of reader interest. Thank you, Josh. Uh, Michael, could you go next? Hello and good morning. Uh, my name is Michael Colbert. I'm Montgomery County Administrator. Uh, the Montgomery County is almost a billion dollar operation with 4,300 employees uh, with a population of about 535,000. So thank you. It's great to be here. Thank you, Michael. It's so, so good to have you. Uh, Shelly, could you go next? Good afternoon, everyone. Good to see you. My name is Shelly Dickstein. I'm the Dayton City Manager. Uh, I have worked in the city for about 27 years, the last seven years as the city manager. Uh, Dayton is a, a city of 140,000 residents uh, and a budget of about $600 million. And we are excited about the opportunity for, uh, to talk about our Dayton recovery plan and uh, excited to be with all of you. Thank you, Shelly. Derek, could you go next? Sorry, Derek, you're muted. It happened. Good. Uh, good afternoon to all Daytonians who live throughout the great Jim City. Uh, my name is Dr. Derek L. Ford, uh, president of the Dayton Unit NAACP, uh, has been in this role for the past 16 years. Um, just retired from uh, Speedway after nearly 30 years of service um, and uh, happy to be here with everyone today and uh, look forward to an engaging conversation. And uh, I just want to say this one quick note uh, is that uh, as I looked at the pictures uh, that was in the paper, uh, you all uh, did a very strategic job at uh, placing those pictures. Just want to say that. Thank you for being here, Derek. Allison, could you go next? 
Sure. Good afternoon. My name is Allison Goble. I'm the executive director of the Greater Ohio Policy Center. We are a research and advocacy organization based in Columbus, but working statewide. Our focus is on helping communities across the state revitalize and strengthen. And we have a special interest in legacy cities such as Dayton and Toledo and, and other places. So happy to be here today. Thank you for thank you for being here, Allison. Terry, could you go last? Yeah, happy to be here, uh, and I'm okay with going last because I was told this is alphabetical. Uh, Terry Posey, Miami Township trustee. Uh, I joined the township as a trustee in January of 2020 and had about a month and a half before we began the COVID planning and everything else that has come with being a, a government representative during that time period. Uh, but I've grown into the role and I've, I've grown into this process. Miami Township is one of about seven Miami Townships in Ohio, but we're the one in Montgomery County with uh, 50,000 residents and approximately a budget of about $25 million. Uh, I also am a local attorney, a litigation partner at the firm of Porter Wright, Morris and Arthur and uh, using these experiences together and, and looking forward to the conversation we're gonna have today. Thank you, Terry. I'd like to remind everybody that you are more than welcome and invited to ask questions of our panelists as the live broadcast is going on. Uh, please don't hesitate to throw some questions in the in, in a comment in the chat as you're watching the live broadcast. We're happy to work those into the program. And I'm gonna remind also the panelists that I'm going to call on uh, for each of the questions I'm gonna call on a panelist. And that is the person who's gonna kind of intro it, but then everyone else is of course, welcome to jump in after that. So I'm gonna start the first question to Shelly. Um, describe how the pandemic has affected your community. Who in your community felt the effects the most and who might not have been affected as much? Yeah, thank you, Nick. So the, the impact in Dayton was largely felt in our hospitality service and service sectors as well as some of the auto component manufacturing um, jobs. And so many of our residents are in those entry level positions and um, struggled with unemployment uh, during the pandemic. Another major uh, impact in our community was felt around di digital equity. We know that there was great, dis great inequity around digital equity, a great disruption. So those families who don't have computers at home or don't have high-speed connectivity um, or you know, really struggled to school their children, certainly couldn't take advantage of the shift to work from home easily as others uh, could. And so there was a great deal of struggle in, in the city of Dayton around equity. Largely the people who, who struggled the most were those that had the least resources. So in our majority black and brown neighborhoods, in our low income neighborhoods, those residents had the greatest struggle while the other, other residents who had more resources um, were able to accommodate the shift to working from home and schooling from home and, and, and working through the pandemic. Thank you, Shelley. Michael, would you like to comment about Montgomery County? Uh, as far as Nick, what we did around some of the pandemic or the impact of the pandemic as it related to the community at large. Just speaking more broadly, I guess, you know, Shelley speaking about the Dayton community, what, what did you see around the county, countywide looking, I guess, look at broader uh, effects about who was, who was impacted more, more closely? Well, the, the pandemic impacted everybody. Uh, uh, the shutdown was huge for the business community, uh, people working, people paying rent, our schools, uh, especially our, you know, our young people converting to distance learning, 
and, and that was huge for the county, ourselves, our own employees. Uh, we had to make adjustments. All of us had to make adjustments. Uh, and I think the, one of the biggest things that we were able to do during this pandemic was first continue county services. Uh, our employees continued to come to work. Water sewer continued to flow. Uh, services at Job and Family Services at Stillwater. Uh, our emergency management uh, team continued to do what they do along managing our strategic reserves of PPE, uh, recognizing that the county instantly had to pivot because the federal government and the state made us the designee around regional PPE. So we had hundreds of trucks and vehicles coming in. We converted the job center uh, to a centralized storage and distribution of PPE. And I would say the biggest thing is, is commending uh, the community and our employees for making the adjustment. Uh, we know a lot of employers and employees were able to work from home. The county services continued to flow and our employees continue to come to work to keep services moving for the public. Did anyone else wanna provide a response about how, how the pandemic affected their communities and who might've been hit the hardest? Uh, you know, uh, Dr. Forward here, uh, you know, too, uh, you know, we cover Montgomery County, uh, so our jurisdiction as an organization uh, actually covers Montgomery County, even though we say that we are the Dayton unit in AACP. Uh, I, I can tell you that uh, the black and brown communities uh, faced a very hard, very rough hardship. As you know, they were a lot of the frontline workers uh, during the pandemic. And as we think about uh, what, uh, you know, when, when, uh, when we had the work sessions, when the city had the work sessions, when, and we applaud the city for putting on a lot of different work sessions, sections for the people who wanted to uh, go out there and apply for those awards. However, uh, you know, a lot of our executive committee members, uh, you know, on my team, uh, who are very professional at, you know, at what they do and have been in a position to uh, get a lot of federal uh, contracts, uh, you know, so they know the contracting process. Uh, so a lot of black and brown uh, communities were uh, were deeply affected. And when we think about uh, what was said during each one of those sessions, the strongest recommendation, the strongest recommendation was that um, that the black and brown minority owned businesses uh, need to be um, need assistance. So when we think about them needing assistance and only receiving 5.6% of the funding, uh, that's very problematic. And, uh, but we do have uh, an opportunity uh, to change that curve. So, yeah, I mean, I'd like to follow up on that because I mean, the, one of the potentials that this money could have, one of the US Treasury's main objectives is uh, addressing the disproportionate impact on marginalized communities and on minority communities. And so following up on what Dr. Forward said, uh, I'd like to know sort of how you guys work that into your plans um, and what the potential this has for that. And I'll start with Shelley because I know Dayton did have a um, targeted effort towards addressing minority businesses and the minority community. Um, if you could talk about what you guys are doing, please, and sort of um, what its impact you hope it'll be. Sure. Thank you, Josh. So so knowing that the impact was greatest in our low income and marginalized uh, historically black and brown um, or black and brown neighborhoods, we set out to really put together, you know, a, a process that would impact 
and provide that outcome. You know, the outcome of creating long-term transformational investments that would disrupt multi-generational poverty. Now we know $140 million is a lot of money, um, but when you put it in perspective, you know, it's about two thirds of our annual budget. So it's not, uh, it, it, is, it is not going to, we're not gonna undo decades of um, problems that have come along with, with this money. But what we wanted to do was really put a plan together that was data-driven, that um, certainly addressed the racial equity, uh, drove investment into marginalized communities, um, and looked at a way to leverage that um, investment with other resources, whether it was other city funding resources from our CDBG funding, whether it was other funding sources from federal, state, or local government, because the more leverage, the greater impact that we set ourselves up for. And so we did have a very robust process. It was about 10 months in, in length. Uh, we had um, almost 2,000 people participate and engaged by providing input to give us direction on the kinds of activities we would, you know, they would appreciate and invest. And, and as a result of that, um, we um, put a plan before city commission on December 15th, um, 2021, that proposed $55 million to improve our neighborhoods. That includes demolishing blighted structures, improving housing conditions, whether it's infill, rehab, um, reconstructing sidewalks, curbs, upgrading parks, improving and constructing new spray parks, because the whole idea was we wanted to address quality of life. We wanted to address those areas in our city that were struggling with health impacts from COVID and previous disinvestments. So we had a very data-driven uh, process around socio, the social determinants of health. So we used a matrix to, to help identify along with neighborhood data to help identify five really targeted areas that we would drive this $55 million of investment into, all the while looking for other resources to leverage that money so that we would have a greater impact. So we also um, uh, called out the support to grow black and brown owned businesses and women owned businesses, because we know again, um, they uh, had a real devastating impact due to the pandemic, as Dr. Forward already um, mentioned. And we wanted to make sure, we had already started this prior to the pandemic, but we were really working on, uh, on a strategy where we could grow you know, and, and create more opportunity uh, for Black and Brown-owned businesses to either you know, get support from entrepreneurial and starting businesses or growing their business. Um, we also knew that our community, our business and nonprofits still needed support, still needed to, to help get out of this uh, uh, struggle. And um, we had a process that allowed for external application. And in that process, we um, had about 10, uh, 11, we had seven technical assistance workshops to help people apply. We ended up having 170 external applicants 
who, who for asked a total of $311 million. So there was uh, certainly a lot of technical assistance in handholding so that people could access that money. Uh, and, and we're very, very excited about advancing that support to our community. We also added another um, 10.8 million in economic recovery. That was specific catalytic economic investments in, again, these um, uh, marginalized communities, right? So nearly two thirds of the 102 million, because we did, you know, this, this unlike CARES, the ARPA funding allowed us to put aside funding for revenue loss, right? And we anticipate quite an impact from the work from home revenue loss to our, to our income taxes. So we, we set aside, you know, about $36 million for that three year runway um, to be able to keep ourselves whole so that we don't have to disrupt services to the community that they rely on dearly. But so that left $102 million of the 138 million that we received. Nearly two thirds of that 102 million is being invested in uh, the through the adopted Dayton Recovery Plan to benefit minority and low income populations. So we're very proud of the fact that collectively we are driving investment into areas that need to have investment, that need to have um, support uh, to grow. To, to, to grow healthier opportunities for their families, to be able to add amenities. And, and we're uh, now in the process of implementing on this recovery plan and those planned investments. Allison, I'd be curious to know, um, one of the interesting things about ARPA is it's going to every community across the state and country, right? So Dayton got the most, $138 million, most in our area. Uh, but down to the smallest village, they got money. And so there's lots of different places approaching it differently. And Alice, I'd be curious to know, as far as uh, serving vulnerable populations and finding ways to sort of address those needs, what are you seeing around the state and what organizations or what uh, entities and uh, cities and counties and townships are doing? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, we're seeing a range of things. A lot of sort of the investments that Dayton, uh, that Shelley outlined, we're seeing elsewhere. So um, just maybe to put kind of a finer point on it. So a lot of communities are investing in uh, recreation centers that maybe have not had a lot of investment lately and that are um, most likely or often in qualified census tracts. So these are going to really um, benefit folks who are in low-income census tracts. Um, we are also seeing actually a lot of lead service line replacement, which again tends to have like tends to still exist in neighborhoods that haven't had a lot of investment over you know several last decades. Uh, we've been working in Mansfield and Richland County for the last um, six or seven months, assisting community uh, leaders there and trying to be very strategic about the investments that they're making. And um, I'm really excited to say that the city and county both with their separate pots of funds are seriously considering investing in a, a community center that would be located in Mansfield's North End, um, which is uh, the historically black and Appalachian white neighborhood. And um, this community center is um, certainly will have like the classrooms and sort of, you know, gym that you would expect in a community center, but the um, the nonprofit that's leading on this is also hoping to attract like um, a legal aid clinic person, right, who'd be there once one day a week, um, a medical clinic, um, workforce development trainers, right, so like really making this a one-stop uh, stop 
in the neighborhood, but also really serving as sort of a catalytic large scale project, which then can spur other investments. So what we're also hearing in that same community is like the um, area agency on aging is now thinking, well, maybe we should locate senior housing closer to this community center, right? And they may ask for some ARPA funds or they may not. But um, just to say sort of there is a recognition across the state that these funds are a one-time opportunity. How can we leverage them? And how can we really start to sort of address um, and sort of, you know, stop and turn around some long-term trends? So um, I think what Dayton has outlined, you know, like we said, we're seeing elsewhere, but sort of in various different forms. And finally, Michael, yeah. I'm just curious how, what, what, what approach, yeah, I'm sorry, did I cut you off, Mr. Ford? Yeah, uh, you know, so when you think about those long-term trends that she just said, and you know, a long-term trend is that uh, oftentimes when, um, when, when, when governmental agencies hear from their constituents, meaning their citizens, and they ask their citizens for input, if the citizens, uh, if majority of the citizens says, hey, we need X amount of dollars to fund black and brown communities or black and brown business or women owned businesses. Uh, and, and we look at the dollars and cents and the dollars and cents, it doesn't add up from the standpoint of what the community said that they wanted uh, right here in our community. And it will be interesting if that's the same uh, as what uh, Alice, Allison is saying, uh, seeing across the state, if in fact, we continue to get the short end of the stick. So you get five buckets of, of you know, five pockets of money right here, five pockets of money that the city came up with. Uh, and at the end of the day, who is on the short, who's on the short bus? Uh, who's on the short bus is the black and brown communities. And those are the individuals through a collaboration of, uh, of a multi-generational, multicultural, multi-ethnic group of people who was in those meetings said that it, the money need to go to. So when you think about uh, a situation whereas we have a, um, where Dayton actually was, and I'm about very proud of this, Dayton was uh, 49th. I had the 49th most money out of all of the cities across the country. 49th. Out of all the cities who's allocated funds, think about that, $138 million. So if the community is saying, if you're asking the community to participate uh, uh, and where this money should go, then we should be listening to the community. That's where the issue lies. And then not only that, when we think about uh, individuals who, who don't know the process, uh, you know, yes, they were given opportunities to go through, you know, to go to some of the workshops uh, to understand, uh, you know, the process and uh, try, but they, a lot of people needed one-on-one -on -one, uh, time, you know, and that's why we simply sent that letter uh, sent this letter back on October 28th, uh, asking, very humbly asking, uh, for the city to uh, extend the time. Because as we all know on this call, as we all know on this call, uh, those funds do not have to be expended uh, or obligated until December 31st, 2024. And here it is, we're in 2020, uh, 2022. So, and, and then they don't have to be uh, expended until December 20, 31st, 2026. So it's still a long time off. And, and I believe with our leadership uh, down at City Hall, I believe with our leadership, we can open the doors up for other individuals to apply. I don't see why, why there has to be such a hard cutoff in that particular equation because uh, you know our leadership is dynamic. And, and I, give, I give kudos to where kudos belong. And I believe we do have some great leadership. Uh, including Shelly, who's on this call with us right now. 
But I, what I'm saying is that we can still open the door up for other individuals who don't really truly understand the process and need, uh, you know, it could be helped by those particular folks and their organizations. And that's what the NACP's position was on this back in October of last year. You know, nobody is, you know, is saying anything about leadership. We got great leadership in Dayton. You know, uh, for, I'm talking about governmental leadership in Dayton. You know, so, um, but what I am saying is that sometimes, uh, you know, we cannot continue in all aspects, whether or not it's criminal justice, or whether or not it's healthcare, whether or not it's education, we cannot always be on the short end of the bus. And, uh, you know, so it's just like next, you know, this coming weekend, uh, we, we're gonna have a, uh, a new community festival of peace at McIntosh Park from one to five, this coming weekend. How about some of those dollars? Because in terms of the buckets, some of this uh, could be used, of course, will be used for police and fire. Uh, you know, so we've been asking, I've been president for 16 years, and I've been asking for the Dayton Police Department to start uh, holding some kind of community events. So we talk about community and police together. Well, you know, I've been asking for them to hold some community events. Not only uh, will they start building a relationship with community members, but they will also have an opportunity to gather intelligence, a much needed intelligence to make our community safer. So some of those monies should be allocated that because we've been asking for that for 16 years uh, here uh, with me being in leadership, asking for our police department uh, to hold some quarterly, uh, uh, you know, quarterly um, festivals like what we're going to do this coming Saturday, uh, you know, to, uh, to to bring community and police together. So you know, this is just some of those kind of things that's very worries, worrisome uh, for the, the black and brown communities. So, so as a point of clarification, I just want to I just want to reemphasize that we had um, with those 2000 engagements through that we collected through inputs that we collected through surveys, we collected through 11 different uh, community meetings to gather to have face to face and, and have conversation of those of those inputs, the vast the by a long shot priority was, first of all, demolition. They want, and we have a thousand structures right now on our nuisance list and, and the community wants demolition. They want this, the blighting influence out of their neighborhoods. They also, the second highest ranking priority was housing. We need better quality housing. And we know we have a lot of affordable housing in the city of Dayton, but it's not the highest quality in many places. And so making sure that we are, again, through a data different approach, uh, addressing the needs in each of these areas because they're different areas, right? Some may need more senior adaptive housing. Some may need new infill housing and have a market, you know, may, may need more market rate units. Some may need the more higher quality affordable units. So we are we are now digging in and implementing. And and to the response with regards to why you know why so fast? You know, we know that the money has to be obligated in at the end of 2024. We also know that there was a huge, huge front end tail or front end on this to get all of these contracts in place to be able to get through. First of all, we didn't even have final guidance until the end of January. You know, then you had to vet and make sure that all of the intended uses were uh, compliant with the final federal guidance. Then you had to do the vetting to make sure that you know, there's another deep level of vetting. If we're going to be responsible with these tax dollars, we've got to make sure 
that what we're investing in is what is going to have the impact, the intended impact. And so there's another level of vetting. There's the development agreement work, the contractual work that has to happen. We are still in the midst of doing all of that. And you know, it's July, August before we're even going to be able to get contracts into the applicant's hands. And some of them will have to wait until the next construction season if it's a construction project. You know, they they, they so so it is not well two plus two and a quarter years may sound like a lot of time. It's not a lot of time when you're dealing with the training that it takes for federal compliance. They have to understand to the T, you know, what the requirements are with regards to this federal money, because the city of Dayton is responsible for every dollar of this 138 million. And we want to make sure that we're setting people up to be successful. We're setting people up to have the impact that we all want in our communities. And that takes time. And then there's a long tail on this activity as well as the auditors come in and do their auditing and, and compliance to make sure that we don't have any um, uh, fraud or any of the you know, consequences that we don't wanna have in our community. So it's not uh, it's not nearly as easy with you know money that's not doesn't have any strings and and we are being very uh, deliberate, uh, thoughtful, and strategic as we're working through this process. Uh, but I can tell you that there are many there are many uh, at the time that letter was written uh, through data, uh, you know, and and, and and through my contacts and resources that we have on a federal level, uh, there are many large municipalities. And, and some small uh, municipalities that had not even uh, went through the whole process. So from our, you know, so from when we look at this, uh, and we look at all of the cities uh, that's that's on this list that's inside my computer here, uh, of all those different cities who were awarded, there was many, many, many cities. I mean, being efficient is one thing, uh, but being uh, effective is another. And you, know, in terms of ensuring that we have a, a great deal of deal of people who has access to those particular dollars. And then when we look at those dollars, we have to say, uh, if it doesn't make dollars, it doesn't make sense. So when we uh, say that, okay, well, uh, 5.6 or 7 point, whatever that number is, uh, the lowest amount of bucket, because what we heard, and we had individuals from our executive committee uh, at each one of those meetings, members of my executive committee, were, and each one of them came back to our board, to our executive committee, and stated this is what the community wanted. So uh, it would be awesome to be able to see the data uh, as being, you know, because that, uh, in terms of data versus what was said inside those media uh, meetings, and there's two different things as I'm seeing on this particular call right now. This is an important issue and one that we're going to continue to cover. In fact, I, we have a story coming up this Sunday in the daily news, looking at the black and brown businesses, what the city is investing in and some of these issues. But I did wanna focus not just on the city of Dayton and uh, give uh, Mr. Colbert a chance to comment on what the county's doing uh, and how that's going to impact also marginalized and vulnerable communities. So uh, Michael, if you could talk about just um, the approach that Montgomery County is taking and how it's going to impact, again, marginalized, the, the people who really need the help. Thank you, Josh. Uh, we've taken a broader kind of a, a long term approach to this, and it started a, a little bit before the pandemic and kind of dovetailed into the pandemic. 
Um, and we defined through resolution uh, racism as a public health crisis. And we didn't just make it a resolution. We actually put some teeth behind it. Uh, it started with making key investments in, in certain communities. Uh, our investment in our Northwest Staten uh, Job Center, uh, the Montgomery County Employment Opportunity Center that is at the West Town area is a multi-million dollar investment where a grocery store divested in the community. We went right into the West Town area and built a multi-million dollar center. By the time the CARES Act money rolled around, we knew then we already had a strategy in place. So we had a strategy for doing construction projects. We had a strategy for sending money out, a strategy for hiring, all around uh, making sure that we were equitable in our distribution. By the time we did $12.7 million worth of CARES Act business distributions, 1,290 grants went out and 592 went to minority-owned businesses. 62 women-owned businesses, 88 veteran-owned businesses. And our nonprofits, we made sure to engage out of the $18.2 million that we did in non-for-profit, 136 grants, 1.7 million went to the faith-based community. And then we also did things like completely pay for the Homeful Mobile grocery store because we knew some communities had more than enough in groceries and other communities didn't have enough. That store can move through communities and offer full service grocery. We also invested significant economic development dollars uh, in the Jim City market. So these dollars as a major partner brings grocery into a community. When we look at our grants, our not-for-profit grants or our grants for schools, we did 24 million in grants, some 30 grants to school. Dayton Public School was one of the largest, was the largest school district at $3 million. Uh, 2 million in Centerville, and then we hit Trotwood and some of the other schools at a million. Uh, our emergency assistance program, $13 million, over 3,890 families served, 16,400 utility bill credits. These spread across Montgomery County and hit all populations. Uh, and then digital equity. Digital equity was huge, Josh, because we placed $2 million worth of digital equity strategically right in the heart of uh, black and brown communities. When we look at Finch and Hawthorne, Wilkinson Plaza, DeSoto Bass, Westdale Terrace, and Park Manor, uh, we built a broadband infrastructure partnering with CareSource and Cincinnati Bell, which is now Alta Fiber. Um, we partnered with them and we brought in not only the broadband capability so that uh, young people can do distance learning, families can have high-speed internet, but also we brought in the hardware, computers, Wi-Fi boxes and everything. So the commissioners and, and, and the county have made it a strategic interest and we'll do the same thing with ARPA. Uh, ARPA is gonna involve our strategy of doing a lot of contracting work because we're looking at ARPA, ARPA a lot differently than we were CARES Act. Um, but CARES Act was really the predominant tool to get money into the community at a time when we all needed it. But we'll do the same thing with ARPA because we're gonna be doing a lot of contracting and we'll do some very targeted contracting in those projects to make sure that uh, black and brown communities uh, get their share of that work. You say you're looking at ARPA differently. Could you explain that, expand on that a bit? Mm. We are. So when, when we looked at, and I think that was one of your future questions, so I guess I'm just gonna weave right into it. 
when we looked at uh, CARES Act, you know, 92.7 million, we needed to get that out. Okay, the community was suffering, people were losing jobs, businesses were closing. Uh, our team did a great job of getting that out. We met the standard. We had a very short time window to do that, not knowing at the time, Josh, that the federal government was going to extend. So we had to get that out by December of that year. But when we came back and we reevaluated ARPA, we said to ourselves, number one, ARPA has a larger time frame. We have a bigger time extension with ARPA, so we can be much more strategic. And we have an opportunity with ARPA to make sure that in that strategy, we're doing some lifelong infrastructure components. We also, with CARES, as I talked about the urgency and now, CARES was much more flexible. We had the ability with CARES to just really kind of almost create programs. With ARPA, the treasury restrictions are, are, are much more uh, vigorous. Uh, there are certain buckets in certain areas that we have to maintain. The standard is a lot different. So knowing that, we decided to look at ARPA and say, how can we enhance the infrastructure and the service level for our public, for our customer? Investments in water sewer. Uh, we want to make sure that our water and our quality of the sewer water that we're putting back into the river and the water that people are drinking across Montgomery County, uh, it is the highest quality. So we're making major investments in our lab. We're going to make a major investment in the Montgomery County lab to test drinking water. Uh, countywide broadband, we learned from CARES Act that, as I mentioned before, we had a distance learning challenge from the standpoint of having adequate fiber octave, okay, and having the necessary subscription that we needed to, to make sure that families have the high-speed internet that they need. So we want to expand broadband and fiber octave into areas that wouldn't normally get an opportunity, our rural areas and our areas uh, inside the urban core uh, where there are challenges. And even if they have the access, Josh, uh, they might not be able to afford the subscription. We want to partner in that area. And then emergency rental assistance. Uh, we are still the number one uh, player in this space. Uh, we have went through the first $15 million allocation of emergency rental assistance. Uh, we will now be turning to a broader utility assistance. And again, if we do the same thing we did with the CARES Act, this will expand across the county and we will be able to help thousands of families in this space. And then uh, public safety, our coroner crime lab. Uh, we're gonna do a major investment. We have the number one crime lab in the state of Ohio. Uh, you probably know Josh, the governor was just here and he just gave us an additional million dollars. So we are going to expand in our uh, crime areas from the standpoint of public safety so that we make sure that uh, we're doing right by those families and that we can prevent as much crime as possible. And then finally, Josh, public health. Again, uh, we used a lot of regional PPE and our strategy around public health is to replenish the public health network so we can be prepared for the next pandemic that comes down the path. Thank you so much, Michael. I'd like to take the time now to briefly reintroduce the program for those who might have joined us a little bit late. I'm Nick Herkman, the Community Impact Editor for the Dayton Daily News. I'm co-hosting this community conversation with Josh Schleiger, our investigative reporter who's been looking into ARPA and federal relief funding. Uh, I'm also joined by Michael Colbert, the Montgomery County Administrator, Shelley Dickstein, the Dayton City Manager, Derek Forward of the Dayton Unit NAACP, 
uh, Allison Gerbel of the Executive Director of the Greater Ohio Policy Center, and Terry Posey, the Miami Township Trustee. So I'm actually going to pivot to, to Terry real quick. We've talked a lot about, uh, to, at some length, the, the different public input processes that have been in place. Every community has handled this a little bit different. Um, there have been, uh, you know, any number of different approaches and, you know, almost no two communities look the same. So I'm gonna talk to Terry real quick to see uh, what did you do to solicit input from your community and what did you learn and what were some of the most asked for items? Yeah, the, uh, the township uh, updates its uh, master plan every 10 years and actually had begun that process in December, 2019, maybe a little bit before that. And so it literally began the process, began soliciting community feedback about what's needed in the township. And the answers were pretty straightforward. It was, uh, we need the roads replaced. Uh, Miami Township is not replacing its roads at the rate of their degradation. Uh, it needs its parks upgraded. People like and enjoy and use the park system that we have in Montgomery County. We're uh, Miami Township in Montgomery County. And uh, they're concerned about the Dayton Mall. And uh, as the pandemic happened, uh, all of those concerns simply amplified. Roads maintained the same, but parks became more important as people were less likely to congregate inside, needed more outside venues. The Dayton Mall was certainly stressed by the economic impact of the pandemic on retail businesses. And in fact, went into bankruptcy and elements of it are, are still in bankruptcy or, or for sale today. Um, so the, the feedback for the master plan was continually updated during the pandemic. We were in a process of communicating with our citizens regarding their needs and it continued. Uh, you place both the CARES Act funds and the ARPA funds in front of us and we have more issues to, to layer over that. And that was one of the challenges because townships were not included in the ARPA Act funds until literally the last day before they went final. And so do we begin the conversation of how to use this? The treasury restrictions on ARPA Act funds went from very specific and narrow in a way that we thought we were going to have to get very creative to actually find good ways to use it and started the opportunities for those conversations to come to us last fall to the point to where they, they said you can use revenue recognition, lost revenue recognition for up to $10 million without documentation. Well, we only have $3 million in, uh, in township ARPA funds. And so we can consider it all lost revenue recognition. Is that the right thing to do with it? Uh, as Michael said, the timing of this, we went slow, both because townships were added late in the process. Uh, we're a little more deliberative and conservative because the primary constituents that we have are, are residents that may commute elsewhere. We have a couple of premier retail areas in, in, in the district that we, the township that we need to take care of, but it's not a lot of the social problems in the same way that the other municipalities in the county are facing and a township's obligations towards its citizens are different than a city and a county. Uh, and, and so that process has been slow for us to the point that it was in a May meeting two weeks ago that we finally authorized recognizing the funds as revenue, lost revenue in order to begin to put them to work. But the process for that is, is still underway. The township has a list of unfunded needs that it hasn't had the resources to be able to address. Do we place the money on that or do we go back to the community and put these funds to the purpose for which they're to be used? We have the roadmap with our master plan of what the citizens are actually interested in the money being spent on, and it overlays to some degree with those needs, but make, making that match up is the work that we're going to face in the next couple months. So everybody has come at this, and, and I thought that the original ARPA plan was going to require to get real creative. When the township residents want roads, and we can only use this for water line reconstruction, do we have water lines that are under roads that need replacement? Um, we didn't get to that stage of this at this point, but that's the kind of conversation and creative thinking I was anticipating. 
that's gotten a little bit easier and it doesn't demand any less creative uh, thinking in the sense that these are all dollars to be leveraged. These are once in a lifetime uh, infusions of money in areas. And, and the Miami Township residents also said, we enjoy the taxation rate that we have here and we don't want those things to go up. We live here for a reason. How do you balance all of these factors? And this money is important and it does deserve an effective and efficient and leveraged use. But what that is, is something that's still under process in Miami Township. Yeah, Terry, you mentioned something interesting um, that well, the Treasury Department, when they gave their final guidance, they said that any government can consider up to $10 million as essentially lost revenue. They could just use that for any legal government purpose, right? So most of our governments got still a lot of money, millions of dollars, but most of them less than 10 million. I think we had 11 governments in our area that got more than that 10 million. Um, and Alice, I want to ask you about some of those rules, like for the bigger governments and the smaller governments, what restrictions are there? Is there is it carte blanche? These guys can use it for whatever they want, or are there uh, restrictions, or, or or are they different for the big and little ones? What are the the restrictions or obstacles to spending that money? Yeah, so the rules, are, broadly speaking, are the same no matter the size uh, local government that you are. The um, and everyone has that ability to do the the lost revenue, right? Sort of kind of put the money into category of lost revenue and then it's sort of unrestricted. Um, the fun, the interesting thing about ARPA funds, generally speaking, are that they are very, um, that they're defined by sort of like what you have to use them by, right? There, there's these four categories and that's very unusual, not very unusual, but fairly unusual. It was a little different than CARES. And so what we're hearing from communities and actually also state as the state tries to administer its allocation is that they are really, everyone is a little sort of struggling around the, the purpose like these, these purpose-built funds, right? And like trying to fit within these categories. And as Terry was saying, everyone has, a lot of places have these community priorities that have been defined through master plans or community plans. And sort of how do you get those priorities to match with the purposes outlined in ARPA? And so there is a little bit of sort of interesting ways that people, uh, communities are backing into it. A lot of places, particularly smaller townships, smaller villages and more rural counties, are very risk adverse. They do not want to be audited by the federal government. And these are, that's a totally fair point. The state is also fairly risk adverse, again, because does not want to get audited and then have to like give back dollars, right? So there tends to, we are seeing the larger cities and, and more urban counties being maybe more quote unquote creative in the way that they are justifying the use of funds and other places, smaller places, wanting to play much more closely by the rules. And I'm not saying that the urban places are not, but just that that create that level of creativity is varied across the state. Um, and it does to some extent match sort of to kind of risk aversion. Hey, hey uh, Josh, uh, yeah, I just wanna follow up on uh, something that Michael, uh, you know, during Michael's uh, speech there, I just wanna find out, uh, now, so are you saying that from a county standpoint, that uh, that you all have not, as a county, allocated the funds yet. So you all are still working through that process. I just want to make certain I understood that correctly. I would say, Derek, we have a plan that we're working from, uh, and we're gonna we have an ARPA plan that's posted to our website that we're working from. As far as allocation of dollars, dollars go out based on projects that have been approved, and then we're working that plan. So yes, some part of all okay. funds have went out the door, but not all of them. So is there so there is a still an opportunity uh, from a countywide standpoint if someone came to our office and uh, wanted to apply that they would be able to apply. We don't have Derek. What's an open door ARPA process? We're not doing ARPA like we did CARES Act, 
what we would do is find out on some of our other funding streams what's what that need is, whether it's a small business or an individual, and then we would figure out how to do that. We don't want to create duplication with ARPA because we're already doing economic development or we're already doing rental assistance. So the best thing to do would be to either contact myself or contact our economic development office. You could send it to me and I can feather it out for you and we can go from there. Thank you. So I just want to, I, I just like to wrap around one more thing, Nick, as far as, you know, I think we all have a lot of the shared goals. This was a, this is one time money that has a, an opportunity for a once in a lifetime investment. And we know uh, given some of the decisions that were made decades ago, that there is disparity in our community. And so being able to use this plan to address some or set the stage or seed investment in those uh, areas that you know haven't always received their fair share of investment was really important to Dayton, just like it's important to the NAACP and just like it's important to Montgomery County. And so that as a starting point, again, is what led the city of Dayton to have two thirds of our neighborhoods of our of the targeted areas are in West Dayton, where we know we can drive investment and that we can leverage it for 10 to 15 years to come. You know, we're using our place-based economic development strategy experience to put together these these plans that we can come back and build on year after year after year so that we can drive investment into our black and brown neighborhoods and amenities and improve quality of life. The other thing that was really important is making sure that we also optimized access to this funding, not just from a project basis, because that requires a certain level of expertise, experience, and, and et cetera, but also from a procurement uh, place, right? And so we set up a regional procurement table that would bring all of the folks together, one, to make sure we're all as aggressive as the federal law allows us in optimizing access for you know, black and brown and minority vendors, but also collectively working together on outreach so that those, come, those businesses know of the opportunity and they receive the technical assistance to be able to compete for that funding because there are hundreds of millions of dollars as Josh indicated earlier, coming to this community. And if we open the door as wide as we can and optimize access for black and brown and women owned businesses, that's a huge wealth generator for our community. I just Josh, want to- I just, I'm sorry, go uh, ahead, Terry. Uh, I appreciate it. Sorry about that. Um, between the one Ohio opioid settlement, which is actually setting up a regional uh, opportunity for collaboration on these issues and ARPA funds themselves encouraging that type of collaboration. I think this is this is the one in a lifetime kind of situation where local government, regional government, county government, city governments can start to think collaboratively about what projects are needed across boundaries. And I think that that conversation should continue in a variety of ways because between the ARPA funds and the one Ohio opioid settlements, these are new dollars coming in for specific purposes that these conversations are able to be had among these communities in ways that they may have been competitive for these dollars in the past or have to have trouble funding these, these issues even if they had common goals. So I think that this conversation is good and that the opportunity for these governments that have traditionally had very limited financial resources to have dollars to put to important projects is, is a good opportunity to be exploited. 
I was also going to add, uh, Josh, and I think Terry made a good point. Uh, and this is why we added these, these conversations to the fabric of everything we were doing. About once every three months, we do uh, an outreach and we do it for all different pockets of vendors, uh, whether it's a minority vendor, women owned vendors, um, whether we have businesses that are veteran owned uh, and, we, and we do them usually at the Business Solutions Center and we bring our contractors in or potential contractors um, so that they have an opportunity to know what are we bidding? What is the work that's leaving the county? How to become a county vendor uh, one of the challenges we found is a lot of people don't realize how to become a county vendor. The first thing we have to do is get an individual business owner registered as a county vendor. Once we get them registered as a county vendor, then we can continue to do business with them. Another area that uh, we have to look at this strategically broad based. The county per se has to look at the whole county, whether we're doing, and that, and that is very diverse. Uh, that is not just in the core Dayton Central uh, that's everything from Centerville to Huber Heights, uh, Riverside. Uh, you talked about Miami Township, Terry. We look at Brookville. So we have to make sure that populations, rural and urban, are all diversified and getting the necessary infrastructure and the necessary components that they need strategically. And, and that, is, that is what we are trying to do with these dollars. And, I, you know, just... Piggyback off of uh, uh, Terry and Mike, uh, you know, this, you know, kind of goes back to what I said at the beginning, uh, you know, which is why we asked for the extension, uh, you know, and not only do we ask for the extension, uh, we also uh, stated the impact of you know each one of these areas about the state. So one was to extend the due date to allow sufficient amount of time uh, to receive better responses. Uh, and we put some, we listed some bullet points there, but then we also gave the impact of what is meant by that. Uh, number two, confirmation that only uh, eligible expenditures are capital expenses, or all NOFO with a uh, definitive list of those allowable capital expenses. Also, there's a need for a more definitive definition uh, of capital expenditures along with examples. Uh, this will enable applicants to provide better responses and also enhance the evaluation process of the applicants. And then we listed the impact. Uh, you know, open eligible expenses to wages, salary, and operating costs. Uh, and we gave the impact. So when we think about the impact, especially when it comes to wages and salary, uh, it goes back to what I said at the beginning in terms of the frontline workers, most being minority. Uh, most being minority. So, you know, this, this is a, you know, from a proportionate standpoint. Uh, then number four, uh, we, we said to remove the 50% limit of companies operating expenses from uh, SBA and ARPA for qualified capital uh, requests. And we put listed the impact. Uh, number five, survey data transparency prior to the due date. And we listed the impact. Uh, number six, uh, provide capital to the idea box submissions. And uh, we listed what the impact would be. And then finally, number seven, uh, confirm how much money is being allocated to each NOFO. And we listed the impact. Uh, because at the end of the day, uh, and if we were to ask the question, uh, what minority-owned businesses, female-owned businesses, actually received uh, contracts uh, or awarded uh, dollars, is it some of the same uh, uh, you know, uh, businesses that has always received funding? Or, or is it a quite a considerable amount of new businesses? And I'll probably venture to say uh, that it's probably not a lot, lot of new businesses because they couldn't get through the process. You know, they needed more time. 
So, uh, so that's the only thing that we're saying here. I mean, uh, the process, um, I mean, I, it goes back to what I said earlier about leadership. We have good leadership uh, citywide. We got good leadership countywide. Uh, you know, but but sometimes we just need to ensure that uh, we need to go where the rubber meets the road in terms of who who's great, who has the greater impact. Uh, you know, who who uh, you know, especially communities of color, there's an adverse effect. As we know, there's been an adverse effect, uh, you know, on job creation, adverse effect on healthcare, adverse effect on educational attainment, adverse effect on political representation. You know, so all of these things are a culmination, uh, you know, of what the community sees and wants. Yeah, neighborhoods is fine. I mean, I, you know, yeah, we all want great neighborhoods, but I can tell you what, inside of my neighborhood, I just had a meeting with the police chief. Uh, just a couple of days ago because of burnouts that's being done in my community. Are those ARPA dollars going to come and clean up those streets, uh, you know, that we've been talking about for the past three years? And uh, now, now inside of my community, inside of my community, I'm talking about neighborhoods now, inside of my community, uh, I, you know, I just paid my house off, uh, you know, in your last year, six years early. And, and uh, you know, so when I think about, you uh, into the neighborhoods, investing to the neighborhoods, I want to be able to see how many how many of those dollars is going to come to Northern Hills. That's where I live. So uh, so I, I, I may be calling you about that, Shelly, to see how many of those dollars are, are going to come to Northern Hills, uh, you know, to, to help clean up uh, our neighborhood uh, you know, from a lot of people who worked at GM, who's retired from GM. You know, there's a lot of people, especially in Northern Hills, uh, that that are retirees, but, but they're... Um, in, in a position where the, where their homes are paid off and now have to deal with some other elements, uh, which of course we're gonna address this coming Saturday, once again, at our uh, Community Festival of Peace. So I did want to, there's another uh, topic that we're running out of time that I wanted to make sure to get to. Uh, and that's one that we hear a lot from readers and that's the issue of fraud and all that unemployment. Uh, there's a huge amount of money that was lost to fraud of the unemployment program, PPP, there's concerns about fraud there. And so I think there's a, one thing I've heard a lot from people is what's the oversight mechanism? How are we making sure that this money gets where it needs to go? And so I did want to ask that question to, to Shelley and Michael, I guess I'll start with Shelley. So how, how, what, what's the oversight mechanism for those who are concerned about that issue? So Josh, that's obviously a very legitimate question. Um, where there's opportunity, we always will find bad actors, right? Uh, and so we have to be very proactive. And the city of Dayton, um, for that reason, at the start of our process, contracted with a third party independent auditor who has been um, in the process from the very beginning, informing the application process, informing the training process, informing the contracts that we're setting in place, and they will be doing robust auditing, you know, as the throughout the implementation phase, so that we know from the very, you know, that, that the money is going to the uses, to the intentions that the, that we, you know, set the the project up for, right? So taking it very seriously, because again, City of Dayton is ultimately responsible for every dollar of this of this ARPA funding. Uh, Michael, same question to you. Yeah, please. I just, just for those who are concerned about the oversight issue, what are you guys doing? You know, Josh, this is interesting for us because you know we kind of already went through this. We we got out $92.7 million of CARES Act in seven months. And then immediately uh, we had the auditors come right in. Uh, we were fortunate. The auditors gave us both an unqualified clean opinion 
on both our internal controls and our financials. So our team did a great job. I give all credit to them uh, to get $90 million out in seven months and to get a clean opinion from the auditor state is wonderful. Uh, but we went through that and there were a lot of lessons learned. Um, and what we did, Josh, is we took those lessons, especially around um, you know, emergency rental assistance, emergency housing assistance, emergency utility assistance. And we beefed up our internal controls as it relates to the ARPA monies, because now we're doing that all over again uh, with ARPA, only with a bigger pot of money. And so as we, as we uh, institute and, and develop strategies to disperse this next round of dollars, uh, we're going to add those lessons learned and those best practices into the internal controls of the new distribution of dollars. And uh, so, 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 so some of the things you talked about, having bad actors in the space, they're always going to be there. Um, knowing what your distribution is, who's it going to, is it a reputable person, uh, and, and making sure that you're accountable for those dollars. Thank you, Michael. And we are just about out of time. So I wanted to thank all of our panelists for being here today. I think we covered a lot of a lot of topics. It's a broad topic and there's gonna be continued investigation. I want everyone to be aware that Josh Swigert, our investigative reporter will be tackling this throughout the coming month and, and for a, a, a good period of time. So look for this Sunday as he's working on a story on Dayton's minority business plans under ARPA. There's gonna be continued coverage from the Dayton Daily News on, on all of this federal relief money, which again, it's a once in a lifetime opportunity. It is transformational amounts of money. Uh, these, these are gonna have tremendous impacts on our communities. And thank you all for sharing your insight and expertise on what that looks like for, for residents of our region. Uh, thank you all. And I invite you to join us uh, next month as we look uh, at another topic critical to our community. Thank you, everyone. You can read a shortened transcript of this conversation on DaytonDailyNews.com slash ideas dash voices. I'm your host, Nick Herkman. Join me next time as we talk to community leaders on topics important to the Dayton region.